Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. This episode of HPO is brought to you by Bioptimizers. If you are looking to defend yourself against harmful bacteria, then I have something for you to consider. It's called the Ultimate Immunity Protection Stack, and it was put together by our friends at Bioptimizers. Their immunity stack has three products which contain over 18 natural herbs and probiotic blends formulated to fight and eliminate bad bacteria like E. coli, salmonella, gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, and repair compromised gut linings. It also helps increase serotonin, which naturally elevates your mood, performance, and cognitive function with no side effects or dependencies, simply stirred into any beverage. So go to www.bioptimizers.com forward slash human. That's www.bioptimizers.com forward slash human and use coupon code HUMAN10 to get an extra 10% off the immunity protection stack. And make sure to also check out their Black Friday and Cyber Monday sales during the entire month of November. All right, folks, so welcome back to another episode of the HPO podcast. I have uh, one of my the one of the guests I'm probably the most excited to have come on pre-interview, uh, which will make sense to you if you've listened to this podcast before. But we have uh, Dr. Dominic Diagostino joining us today. And a lot of the listeners probably already know who, uh, who Dom is, but uh, if not, uh, we'll, you'll get a chance to tap into one of the most bright minds, in my opinion, along the lines of uh, ketogenic nutrition, ketogenic performance, and a lot of different stuff. Just a very interesting person to listen to. And that's someone I've been following essentially since I began my own journey on kind of the low carbohydrate, athletic, endurance, athletic stuff. So uh, Dr. Diagostino, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to join the show. Thank you for having me, Zach. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, uh, it was, uh, we were just chatting a little bit about, uh, how crazy 2020 has been this, so far this year. And I think, uh, a couple things I had happened like right before the pandemic kind of came in and full swing and people started really acknowledging it. And one of those was the, the metabolic health summit. We get that off just in time. It seemed like after all was said and done, but uh, that was a, co- a really cool experience. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the Metabolic Health Summit and what you've kind of done with that? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for asking. Yeah, we snuck that in there right before COVID shut down. <laughs> wow, we were right on the edge of that. And maybe it was a super spreader event. Who knows? But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, Metabolic uh, Health Summit is kind of like the brainchild 
really of our lab, you know, and especially Dr. Angela Poff, who is uh, my former PhD student and really all the members of our lab, we wanted to uh, create a conference that was a combination of basic science research, uh, also clinical uh, research and sort of a blend of, of half and half, but also a networking event and opportunity for people who are interested in this space. Uh, in addition, uh, a platform for many companies, uh, entrepreneurial folks are scrambling to get in this space too. And we are very eager to have them showcase their, uh, their service or product you know, at the event. So I get equally excited uh, with the new companies as I do with the speakers. So it started as a small little event at uh, the Embassy Suites on University of South Florida campus of maybe 200 people. And we didn't even advertise it. And at the end of the event, people were standing at the door. And then we realized that we got to blow this up a little bit. So we got the main ballroom. And again, it was 600 people with people standing at the door without ever even really advertising it. So now uh, the venue, uh, the last two years has been in uh, LA and I think it's gonna be in Santa Barbara, the next one. So we're strategizing and we'll make an announcement when the next event will be. Obviously things have changed with COVID and everything, but we see it, of course we're biased. We see it as the premier event <laughs> for uh, low carbohydrate, ketogenic diet and just diet in general. We try to be somewhat you know, agnostic to the diets and just we're interested in metabolism and metabolic health and, and different ways to achieve that. And, uh, and to showcase the, the research on that, everything from, we have a neuroscience track, we have a cancer track and we have like a human optimization and performance track. So, uh, and that usually hits all the check marks for people who are interested in this topic. And mm -hmm. so we're excited to hold the next one and we'll announce shortly when that's going to be. Very cool. Yeah, I think it'll be uh, an exciting event going forward as it has been already. But, uh, you know, one thing that you know, I'm, I'm more interested, I think, personally in the, the performance optimization side of things, just because it's kind of what I do. But I also find a lot of interest and intrigue with how some of this stuff always crosses over to where you see like specific dietary interventions helping out for uh, things that are like almost unrelated. And I, I think with uh, the ketogenic diet specifically, uh, and you look at just like its history with like epileptic seizures and things like that. And now it's really kind of branching in with uh, Verta Health with, uh, you know, type two diabetics and things like that. And then um, in, in my own kind of personal interest with ultra marathons, it's been something that has been really an interesting, interesting experiment that I've kind of been doing for almost 10 years now. And it's, it's, it's kind of fun to see other people do it as well and see where they're where, where their kind of feedback is in terms of how they implement the, the, the approach. And I think now last year was interesting to me because I think when I first started doing, there just wasn't a whole lot of other folks that I could look to that were trying to do it and like compete at a very high level that I think there was a wave of folks that got into it that were just as interested in the diet from a whole lifestyle side of things as they were from a performance side of things. But now we have, uh, you know, quite a, quite a few people even kind of branching in and breaking into the, like, uh, you know, we have a, a recognizable ward with ultra marathons in North America where they it's subjective, but it's, uh, you know, a top 10 ranking every year. And uh, this last year, myself, Jeff Browning, Jason Schlarb and Mike McKnight, 
all follow a version. We all have our own little nuances with it. Um, but all four of us were in the top 11. Mike was the just outside looking in top 10, but the other three of us were had squeaked in. So it's starting to kind of trickle in, I think a little more heavily, even on the front end of the field a bit in, in some of the ultra marathon stuff, which has been kind of an exciting shift that wasn't necessarily there when I first started. That is exciting. I remember Jeff Bullock <laughs> told me about you. I, was, I think he is the first person to put uh, that put you on my radar. And I uh, was telling me stories about about your performance and everything. And that was, man, maybe about like eight years ago or something like that. So uh, yeah, very inspiring. I've come across, you know, through email, people email me a lot of uh, endurance athletes, no one at your level, uh, but quite a few endurance athletes who have switched over. And most of them have had a pretty easy transition in doing that. And some of them still incorporate carbohydrates in and around their training. So it's been kind of interesting to hear people's personalized approach. And I think, you know, that that's going to be the direction. Like, uh, I think people, you know, we're going to personalize the diet for our, maybe even for our glycemic signature, you know, as, as you know, using the levels, you know, continuous glucose monitoring system and looking at the data on that and the metabolic score. Uh, I think there's a lot of information that we can glean from that based upon our performance and how diet affects uh, that, that glucose parameter. And I think in the future, we'll probably be able to, uh, each person sort of has a, uh, a glucotype, if you will, <laughs> or a glycemic signature. And then I think that can be used to optimize, uh, an individual's performance, uh, and health, you know, and from my perspective, I'm also interested in, uh, therapeutic applications too, of that data. So I think, I really think that's the, f- the future and with new devices and sensors being developed, like wearable sensors that are multi-array sensors where you can get different metabolites, I think, so you have essentially real-time metabolomics <laughs> mm-hmm. that, that may be like a, a, a major factor in optimizing individuals' performance. Once that data becomes a reality uh, and the analysis of that data probably equally or more important, that's going to be a major factor in uh, pushing human performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the wearable stuff has been such an interesting thing that was, I guess at its infancy, when I first started running ultra marathons, it, it, it kind of began with just like essentially like different types of heart rate monitors and more highly calibrated, like watch accuracy and things like that. And now, like you said, you have the continuous glucose monitors. Now there's a lot more access to like ketone testing, whether it's breath or blood and all that stuff, uh, that kind of, you can shed a little bit of light on kind of what's going on inside. And, uh, you know, one of the things I was excited to talk to you about was the continuous glucose monitor. So maybe we can kind of jump into that a little bit. Uh, my kind of my first question along lines with that is, uh, cause you mentioned like therapeutic use as well as performance-based stuff. Is there, do you see like a big or maybe not big or just any variance in terms of like what type of uh, consistency you're looking for with uh, say a report on a continuous glucose monitor for someone who's living like a very active lifestyle where maybe performance is even their primary goal versus someone who is using it to try to manage uh, you know, a pre-existing condition or just kind of have a, get their, their, their ranges in a, in a healthy spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. Well, I think um, 
you know, the optimal target range, I, I think, in, in general, and each, and I think I'd like to emphasize that each person is a unique metabolic entity. And I think the technology and the level software uh, will basically shed light on what would be the ideal target range for the individuals based upon their, you know, metabolic signature. Uh, for when we're talking about, you know, if I can use the example of epilepsy uh, or seizure disorders, where we know the ketogenic diet has a pretty profound effect. And it does that in part, uh, we think not only by producing ketones, but also suppressing insulin and insulin signaling, and also keeping glycemic variability to a minimum. So if you suppress uh, insulin signaling and limit glucose availability, you are decreasing uh, glycolysis and, and other and glycolytic activity in the brain in a way that sort of changes the neuropharmacology of the brain that that promotes an anti-seizure neuroprotective effect. And it's 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 still debated, uh, but I we, we think that ketones have also have a profound anti-seizure effect because if we give ketones uh, in the context of a high carb diet, we can also see a, a, an anti-seizure effect independent of carbohydrate restriction. So there's uh, multiple things working in synergy there, but for someone who's managing a disease process like a seizure disorder or even cancer, I think the target range would probably be between 50. And I know that sounds very low, but in the context of a ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting on a ketogenic diet, uh, a blood glucose of 50 milligrams per deciliter, many people would be totally asymptomatic uh, for hypoglycemia at 50 and even 40 for some people. Uh, but I think between 50 and like 100 may be that ideal range. Whereas if you're spiking glucose above that and you, you're managing a, uh, you have, you're using the ketogenic diet for metabolic management of a seizure disorder, spiking above 100 or more may trigger a seizure. Uh, whereas it's the same thing, you know, with, with cancer, it's not always apparent what, what's happening if you go above that because, but you're likely triggering maybe cancer growth and processes that could be contributing to the growth and proliferation of cancer. Uh, of course I'm talking about the ketogenic diet or a metabolic therapy being used as an adjuvant, uh, in the context of cancer. So 10 years ago, there were basically no clinical trials on clinicaltrials.gov. Uh, but over the last 10 years, we, I think we have about 35 or more registered clinical trials on clinicaltrials.gov. And the ketogenic diet is being used to further augment therapeutic efficacy of chemotherapy, radiation, immune-based therapies, or even um, in the context of the PI3 kinase inhibitors that Luke Cantley developed uh, being used to further augment the effects of different metabolic based uh, drugs. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so when we talk about the ketogenic diet, I think the, the therapeutic window would be lower than it would be for, uh, for a normal healthy person. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. I think, uh, you know, one of the things I first noticed when I started wearing the, cause I've had like, you know, glucose tests when I go get blood panels and things like that. But really all you highlight there is your, your, you know, fasting glucose levels. And for me, the interesting, I've always, I've always found I have fit, not super high, but higher than what I would expect fasting glucose levels in some cases. And sometimes I think it, but after wearing the, the, the CGM for about just under two weeks at this point, 
I'm noticing why maybe that is. It could just be the timing of when I'm going in for these things because I'll have, uh, uh, I'll, I'll wake up in the morning and it'll be sitting like between 70 and 80. And I swear, if I just look at the coffee machine in my running shoes, it starts creeping up towards a hundred. So I don't know if that's just like a response from my routine being fairly similar from day to day in the sense that I do like the bulk of my exercise within like the first like 45 to 60 minutes when I wake up and I don't have a huge window of time when I would normally wake up. It's usually like relatively consistent within like about an hour to at most two hour time frame. Um, so I'm kind of interested in just, do you see like preemptive glucose kind of creeping when like mm -hmm. there's activity at hand, does your body adapt to like your routine with that? And the other interesting thing, not to put too many questions on the table, but mm -hmm. I've had my, my CGM go below 50 during a run, like a few times. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I mean, it's really apparent on the monitor because like when you dip below 50, at least on the ranges that mine are set to, once it goes under 50, it kind of shows a red line versus the black yep. line trend. Yep. Mm -hmm. And, uh, what I notice is like, I can definitely tell when it's that low. Like I don't really feel like I want to go start doing wind sprints, but from just like uh, the aerobic training that I'm doing at the moment uh, for some context, I'm preparing for a 24 hour event. So the pacing that I'm kind of aiming for there's between seven 30 and eight minute mile pace. So I'm just doing a lot of volume at that kind of relative intensity right now, as I kind of put on the, the peaking phase of my training. And it's really interesting to me. Like I'll go, if I go for like an afternoon run, it's not uncommon that I'll dip under 50 and, uh, I'll, 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 if I, if I'm watching it close enough or you know, scanning it every once in a while during the run, it, I can kind of, if I just, if I'm honest with myself, I think like, yeah, I don't think I'd want to go do interval workout right now, but I have no problem mm -hmm. running this like very aerobic pace. Is that something that is common, uncommon, maybe more common for someone like myself on a low carb diet, or should I be like very concerned and rush to the hospital right after this interview? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, that's great that you brought that up because, uh, this is exactly what, you know, levels is really focused on understanding the behavioral effects. And, uh, my wife is a behavioral neuroscientist and we're sort of delving into sort of how, how metabolism, how changes in metabolism can affect cognitive function, behavioral aspects, uh, but conversely, how behavioral effects can impact uh, glycemia. So I guess what you're describing is sort of like an anticipatory change in your CGM just by looking at something. So what would be interesting is, is if your heart rate changes. So, you know, if you have greater cardiac demands and cardiac output independent of physical activity, sort of mobilizing uh, your heart rate may increase and you are likely stimulating processes like gluconeogenesis or glycogenolysis, which is making more fuel available for the anticipated exercise. Um, so I think that's happening, but it has not been characterized at all. Like what you are describing has not been characterized. So it would be interesting to delve into that, to like understand that more. And what you're describing as you know, your glucose level can drop down to 50 or below 50, and then you feel totally fine engaging in aerobic performance, but you wouldn't want to go do sprints. Uh, but your body, and, and I think that that's okay. And I, I, I sort of agree with you too, at that level of glucose, it's probably not optimal for you to go do sprints, but you could also probably train your body to have that 
metabolic uh, exercise, you know, flexibility where you are running. And then if you do like an interval, a sprint interval and go back to running, like you'll, your body is so fine tuned for ultra endurance events and, and, and sprints that, uh, it is probably a way of conserving, you know, your glucose getting so low, uh, could be could because you're so fat adapted because you're mobilizing and utilizing fat as an energy source. So it's kind of, you can kind of perceive it as a means to spare glucose and glycogen. Uh, but if you were to train and get in that state and then do an interval and then get in that state, like your body would probably adapt, but it might not be optimal for the long, you know, endurance events that you're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless, it's a very interesting observation that you have, uh, a level of glucose that medically speaking that we teach in physiology is dangerous (laughs) and that you are, uh, you are experiencing, uh, you know, through measurement, uh, a very profound hypoglycemic event, but you are asymptomatic for hypoglycemia which suggests that ketones are a major contributor to your brain energy metabolism at that time point, likely, or lactate, but probably a combination of, of fuels. And, uh, and probably in, in that, that scenario, you, your body might be optimized. Whereas a physiologist who's not accustomed to seeing that, if they took a blood sample and saw it, they would think that you might be on the ground. <laughs> and not functioning. So, so you, maybe you're, you're kind of, or, or you and other people, extreme athletes that are using this low carb approach will likely have to rewrite some of the textbooks on what's, uh, what's possible for human bodies to, to function in different environments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was going to, you know, my, my follow-up question and like, I was going to just ask you if you think this would be a smart idea or not. And I can bring my wife out with me to watch and do it right by the house is when I, if I can get it that low during a run, I kind of want to force myself to just do some like 10 to 15 second, like fast bursts and see if I can drive it up. Is there like a mm-hmm. demand driven type thing where I could, uh, cause it sounds like what you're saying is like, perhaps what's happening. And this is another interesting kind of, uh, takeaway from that is when it does dip down that low, it's never early in the run. It's always when I've gotten like, say an hour or so in. So I've really had a time to kind of probably open up that fat burning pathway to a point Mm -hmm. where with my heart rate being pretty low and probably in like the one thirties at that pace in most cases, if not below at some points, it's a spot for me where my fat oxidation rates are typically at where I'm probably burning as close to a hundred percent fat as I can with still working out uh, that maybe it's just looking at it like, yeah, we're going to spare all the glucose at this intensity because based on my dietary intake, there's just not necessarily, I'm, I'm probably, uh, I guess more or less, uh, building the metabolic structure for me to spare glucose more, more so than say somebody who's eating like a 60 to 80% carbohydrate diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be, that would be really interesting. Yeah. I think, uh, if you did add some intervals there, what what is happening is that, you know, the, your liver stores glycogen, right. But your muscle stores glycogen. So you could be mobilizing skeletal muscle, you know, glycogen, and it may not necessarily be observable mm. in circulation. So, uh, and I, 
I believe that low carb athletes have a higher capacity of uh, retaining that and using it under those conditions that you describe. So uh, it would be it would be very interesting to see if you get a spike in glucose after prolonged or protracted uh, exercise you know, in uh, doing aerobic ultramarathon exercise and to do those sprints, I, I would think you'd probably be pulling more from your uh, skeletal muscle glycogen and that may not be observable in, uh, in circulation. Okay. Interesting. Well, I'll, I'll try to keep an eye on it. I, I know like I haven't really mentioned this yet on the, on the podcast. So some of the listeners are probably a little curious as to what I'm doing with the CGM, but um, just to kind of s- summarize it. I've been playing around with it for about a week and a half, almost two weeks to get an idea of just kind of how to you how to use it, how I want to structure things. But ultimately I'm going to do a little bit more of a structure where I test at certain intervals after meals and things like that during certain points of during runs, before runs, after runs and things like that just to get a, like you said, kind of a signature as to like what my body's doing uh, with my lifestyle as well as my nutrition and see where, where those numbers kind of play out. And after I kind of do, I'm thinking about maybe doing a couple weeks where I structure it around what I would do if I didn't have the CJM there. And then getting a little more precise with looking at like, well, what does this exact type of food do to it versus this type? Or what does this type of meal do to it versus this type of meal? And tease out even like another layer of a layer of information. Um, do you think I'm structuring things in a way that would be interesting? Or is there things I'm missing here that I should be looking at with that as well? No, I think that that looks like a good plan to me. Uh, if yeah, you don't mind, maybe you could write it out and send it to me and then I can get yeah. and then you know, you're capturing all the data too, which is which is great with the uh, with the app, with the levels app. So you can go back and sort of analyze things and, uh, you know, take pictures of your food, maybe put in your macros, uh, track that too. And I know the app will soon integrate uh, like the Apple watch and, and various like whoop and, and other things. I think even aura ring is going to be integrated into the app where uh, it'd be very interesting to look at how glycemia changes as a function of heart rate or as a function of, of body temperature, heart rate variability, things like that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Cause I, yeah, I know some of the other things that I recognize on it is that, that, that's, I think some people maybe feel is a little bit weird is like, if I test right after a run, typically, um, typically it's like around a hundred, maybe a little above a hundred, like when I finish, but then like, if I don't eat immediately after it starts to kind of trickle back down towards like that 70, 80 range, and then it'll sit there more or less, it might dip down, down closer to 50 again, if I just decide not to eat, but usually in most, especially with this training block, I'm, I, I ran 172 miles last week. So there's not a lot of two hour windows of not eating after, after exercise right now. Cause I have to get back out in the afternoon for a two a day in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, the, that's like the other interesting thing that I always find is cause I'm not eating a significant, I'm not hardly eating anything actually before some of these morning efforts that are in the neighborhood of two to three hours and I see a bit of a spike if I have like any type of calories with my coffee. So if I have like say milk and a little bit of honey or something like that, then I'll see it pop up. Uh, but then it comes yeah. back down right away and then it kind of hovers around a hundred usually during the runs. Uh, it's, uh, it's more common in the afternoon runs that I get it to drop down into kind of that, 
that, that 50 or below range from time to time. Mm-hmm. And I believe you also use the Biosense Breath Ketone mm-hmm. Analyzer. What, how have your, uh, I use that too, by the way, and I find that it saved me hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on strips yeah. for the <laughs> Abbott Precision Extra. And uh, I also find that it's, it correlates very well with ketones within a certain range. If I go super high, then I'm always maxing out the meter. Like if I'm, uh, you know, doing a, a three-day fast, uh, but under normal conditions, 95% of the time, uh, it correlates really well with uh, blood ketones. And that's super convenient that I don't have to prick my finger and then I can uh, not have to go through strips. So I was wondering how your uh, numbers correlate when, you know, you're doing these extreme Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> that's actually another thing I'm going to layer in here. Uh, the only, I've only had the biosense meter for a few days now, so I haven't really had a chance to structure anything around it yet, but it was something I was going to ask you about. Cause as I, once I start doing the more documentation with this, I want to weave that in as well and just get as much data as I can with this experiment. Uh, but the thing I was going to ask about is, should I be paying attention to, uh, just let, or maybe not paying attention, but is there a range variance that you think I will see being that I've been a, a low carb athlete for almost 10 years now versus someone who's living a little more of a sedentary lifestyle, or at least a lifestyle that doesn't have 20 hours of training in it? Uh, is there going to be a different range? Cause I know the, the biosense meter, uh, you, once you start getting over, I believe it's five ACEs we're looking mm-hmm. at kind of in this like low to moderate ketogenic state. Mm-hmm. And then as you push up to like 10, 15, you're getting into a more of a deeper ketosis state. Um, athletes, should they look at that the same way or is there a different range that I should see in that? I consistently feel best uh, when it's seven, well, let's just call it 10, between 10 and 30 AC. And when I was fasting, last time I was fasting and I was consistently hitting upper 20s to 30s, Man, I had like the smoothest flow of energy to my brain. The day was just kind of flowing. Uh, but generally, uh, like we're in the, you know, midday now, uh, I'm usually right at about 10 to 15. And I usually just stay in a, a moderate state of ketosis blood-wise and, and breath-wise. Uh, I have to do, uh, I am consistently get about 50 to hundred grams of carbs a day, and I'm still running mild to moderate ketosis on the breath meter. And later in the day too, on the blood, my blood usually gets to about 1.5 before I have dinner. And, uh, that's when I feel best personally. But again, I think, uh, I think there's some individual variability on our, uh, the body's ability to produce ketones, uh, convert it to acetoacetate, which then, you know, spontaneously decarboxylates to acetone, which we blow out. Uh, And, and I think that, you know, we have different rates of production and utilization and the biomarker we're measuring blood or breath is sort of a function of production and utilization too, right? I know athletes can be very high ketone consumers, especially if you train in a state of ketosis. We know this because if you dose people up, athletes with uh, exogenous ketones, they clear it from the blood pretty fast. So, you know, we do glucose tolerance tests and athletes do really well on that. And keto adapted athletes, if you give them a dose of exogenous ketones, they clear it from the system very fast. Uh, I've seen sedentary people 
like people who haven't exercised at all and they'll send me some data and it's like, man, their ketones stay elevated for a long time just because their bodies have not been accustomed to transporting and using that as a fuel source. So their rate of ketone clearance will be double or triple than that of an athlete. Uh, could be a function of just global metabolic activity, but I think it's, it's also somewhat specific to the transport and utilization of that specific metabolite. Mm -hmm. This episode of the HPO podcast is sponsored by Swanson Health. Swanson Health has been producing quality vitamins, supplements, food and beverage products, healthy home products, and self-care products for over 50 years from the heart of America. Swanson complies with both FDA and FTC standards, ensuring that consumers can trust the label information and safety of all their products. They are committed to purity and potency from raw ingredients to the final product. They rigorously test their products internally and externally for purity and potency. They will ship orders all over the United States, Canada, and even internationally. I have been picking a few of their products that fit into my nutritional strategy which have included their pure collagen protein for healthy joints, bone broth collagen natural flavor, which is sourced from bovine bones and no artificial colors or flavors, mellow mag to help defend against stress, and omega lemon flavor from molecular distilled fish oil. If you want to try out any of Swanson Health's great products for yourself, use code HUMAN20, that's H-U-M-A-N-2-0, for 20% off all their products and free shipping on orders of $50 plus on swanson.com. That's S-W-A-N-S-O-N dot C-O-M. Links and codes can also be found in the show notes. Yeah, you know, the first time I really got kind of interested in athletic ranges of blood ketone versus, say, sedentary ranges was during the faster study. Uh, I mean, we got a lot of data from that, that I was, that was new to me anyway, cause I just hadn't had really a lot of that testing done historically. But uh, I think at the faster study, I was, I was at one, at least at one, like, I think the morning before the three hour treadmill session, I was actually surprised how low my blood ketones were at. I think I was like 0.7 millimoles or something like that. But that same test produced, uh, you know, my fat oxidation rates, uh, my peak fat oxidation rates at 1.56 grams per minute, which um, wasn't the highest That's in it, wasn't the no. lowest, but you know, I've seen, I think most of the high fat cohort was like between 1.3 and two, if I'm not, if I'm remembering right. So, or maybe it wasn't quite up to two. There might've been one guy who got up that high, but um, I think someone did, if I remember the data, right. Yeah. Which is yeah. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, for, for people who aren't familiar with the context, I believe and and I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I think like the literature before that had kind of 0.9 being pretty high up on the range for a lot of folks. So, you know, if you're, if you're doing 1.8, you're, you know, double what the high end was expected to be. And if you're like me and you're doing 1.56, you're like over 50% above the high end of the range that they had been seeing in the literature before that. So like for, for me in the faster study, I think the most interesting is like what you said earlier is that we had, we had athletes on there who had been doing, I believe it was two years was the requirement to be on a, like a, a, at least a diet, a diet of 10% or less carbohydrate consumption. Um, so we knew that it was going to be a, it, it was there, we, we essentially teased out a couple things, teased out that, 
any weird things like, okay, they've only been doing a ketogenic diet for three weeks type of a, an issue. And Mm -hmm. also teased out, um, that like any type of exercise induced increase in fat oxidation rate, since both cohorts had been, you know, highly trained athletes for, I think that timeline was even longer. So it was pretty safe to say that whether you were one of the high carbers or one of the high fat, fat athletes, you were going to have probably pushed that needle from the training side of things pretty far, uh, based Mm -hmm. on the, on the history. What was your, uh, well, I, I imagine you measured it, the total caloric intake and your macronutrients in general then, and what is it now, especially when you're doing the two a days? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So caloric intake, actually the, the irony is that during the faster study, I was actually preparing for some longer stuff. So I was doing somewhat of a similar training. I was doing a lot of volume at a relatively low intensity going into that. So when I, when I do, I do range my carbohydrate intake, uh, depending on where I am and what phase I'm in in training, where it's like off season is like pretty strict ketosis or ketogenic type approach, like the 50 grams or less a lot of times. And then like early stage when there's some structure in my training, but it's mostly base building, I'll start to kind of creep up a little bit and kind of get maybe up closer to 50 to hundred grams. Uh, then once I start getting into any type of like s- structured interval work or threshold work and start building up my long run and volume starts to kind of accumulate as well, then I'm kind of going to get up closer to hundred to 150 with the occasional day where I'll, I'll even jump up sometimes to, to 200, 250, uh, grams. That's fairly rare, but, uh, it is all, it, it's, it's fairly rare. And it's usually met with what I call like a deload week where I'll do like two or three weeks where I'll build up. And then I'll take a week where I reduce volume and intensity, let everything kind of catch up. And during those deload weeks, I'll kind of go back to more of a stricter ketogenic type of a diet. Um, so that's kind of the context with that. Uh, if you're looking for like percentages, it's usually like kind of like zero to five percent off season, five to ten percent kind of in base building. Um, ten to twenty percent is a pretty safe target when I'm in like kind of peak training. And then there's like maybe a two or three days in there where I'll be doing like back-to-back 30, 35 mile runs or something like that. And I'll let, I'll let carbohydrates creep up closer to 30% sometimes on those days. But that's also in the context of a calorie deficit because I'm just not meeting caloric demands during those back-to-back long run days. I'm going to take a day off or a really easy couple days after that and overeat. And that's just what I found to be a little more comfortable, I guess, more or less when it comes mm-hmm. to trying to, you know, eat two to three times your resting metabolic rate on some of those more active days. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of my general platform. The 24 hours been just a little different since my peaking phase is lower intensity than even a hundred miler. So for a hundred miler, I can push up to my aerobic threshold, which typically is around 155 beats per minute, 150, 155. Uh, whereas for 24 hours, I'm probably going to be staying a little closer to say 130 to 140 would be my guess, uh, during that. So when I'm peaking, and doing a lot of the intensity relative to what I'll do for a race day. It's just a little lower for 24. So I can get away with sticking and sticking kind of closer to my base framework of carbohydrate intake of like, which is that kind of five to 10% range. Um, or from a gram standpoint, I guess it would probably be like, I'm probably going to be under 150 grams almost every day. There's I'm, I won't touch a hundred above 150 in most, um, unless I make a, like a, a big, uh, I wouldn't say mistake, but if I decide just to deviate for a day or something like that, but 
um, the majority of it'll be like 150 or grams or under during, during this, this buildup for the peaking phase of 24 hour training. And this is all periodized. So your training is, uh, you follow like your own template or you use a particular, mm -hmm. uh, strategy. Yeah. So usually yeah. like my philosophy kind of carries over regardless of the distance within ultra marathon for the most part, but then it, it kind of, uh, it changes depending on the goal race intensity then. So the easy way to maybe understand it is it's periodized with the least specific stuff to race intensity earlier in the training plan. And as I move through that, usually it's between 16 and 24 weeks, depending on kind of where my aerobic foundation is at entering the plan, uh, I'll be moving closer to race intensity. So if I were going to do say like a 50 miler where I could be above aerobic threshold, pretty much the entirety of that race or at aerobic threshold and sometimes even push up towards maybe lactic threshold. Uh, that's going to be a little bit different structure than say the 24 hour where uh, if I ever see my, if I see my heart rate creeping up above 150 beats per minute, um, which I'll probably, I'll, I'll, I'll more or less know if I'm doing that. Cause I've, I've gotten really good at perceived effort at certain heart rates just from running as much as I have historically um, but if I, if I end up in that situation, I'll know I need to kind of pull back a little bit. So um, the periodizing ends up kind of just being a little more shuffled around then because the, the race day intensity is going to be a little different than say a 50 miler. Mm -hmm. yeah, okay. Makes sense. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's probably the thing that confuses people the most about what I do, because when I describe it the way I did, it's like, I kind of periodize my nutrition yeah. just like I periodize my training. So once I think, I think sometimes when, when it clicks in someone's mind as to what I'm doing, they, they think like, okay, so then they want to know like what I'm doing for say a hundred miler. And then they want to know what I'm doing for a 50 miler. <laughs> and then now they'll want to know what I'm doing for a 24 miler if I do well at it. So it's, uh, um, it's, it's, it, it, it is kind of a, a bit of a moving target, which is going to confuse people who aren't going to do like kind of a deep dive into kind of where I'm at with training and in racing. And it also, I think it just, it just creates an atmosphere where, where like, it's easy to cherry pick too, where you can be like, Oh, Zach's a strict ketogenic athlete. And then you can say, well, no, he's eating these carbohydrates and <laughs> it can depend. So, um, yeah. I kind of, I find that interesting, but, um, but yeah, that's kind of the framework of, of where my nutrition is at and kind of yeah. how th that's more or less been what's produced those fat oxidation rates, which is what I'm kind of most interested in because, for me with ultra marathon, it's, uh, it's a little bit of kind of like, I'm trying to get fat adapted or fat oxidation rates enough where I can minimize how much exogenous carbohydrate I need on race day. So I don't have to deal with like the high rates of stomach gastrointestinal issues that mm -hmm. happen at like a pretty much, I think the position paper is like 60% or something like that of mm -hmm. single day ultra marathon athletes. And it's like, I want to get that down to like next to nothing if I can, cause you know, four to six months of peak training. I don't want to have go wrong because I was using the bathroom 20 times at the end of a race or something like that. And you can also extend the time periods between intra training or intra event feeding mm -hmm. too, right? If you have better fat fuel flow, uh, I meant to ask you, are any of these races at altitude? Do you have any, and do you, and, and if you do, do you train, do you have to go out of your way to train at altitude? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, I've done most of my peak racing historically closer to sea level. 
Uh, I've done a few where they've got, uh, I think the highest I've raced at peaked at just above 9,000 feet, um, which is a question that comes up a lot because my, my sus- yeah, my suspicion would be if I was racing, say at a minimum of 9,000 feet. So like the Leadville 100 would be a great example. It's like yep. minimum 10,000 mm-hmm. then gets up to like 12, five or something like that. Yep. Um, for that one, I guess, uh, it would pro I would, I would potentially need more carbohydrate for a race like that, or maybe get even more fat adapted. So I don't need to, I mean, this may be a good question for you. The, the person, there's a couple guys though, I, I mentioned earlier, Mike McKnight, Jason Schlarb mm-hmm. and Jeff Browning. Those guys are the opposite of me where they're typically peaking for races that are more high altitude type events. Uh, not as often Leadville, but still like, you know, minimum 4,000 feet. And then they may climb up closer to 10 at times and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With limited oxygen availability, you may rely more. I would like to see sort of someone must've done it. How, how metabolism changes in response to those altitudes. Um, but I know that, uh, generally speaking, ketones, uh, fat, but, but, uh, ketone bodies, I think can provide resilience in, they certainly provide resilience to hyperoxic environments. That's what I study. But, uh, but I think the the jury's kind of still out, but research is being done on, uh, ketone induced resilience in hypoxic environments. And some of the data indicates that there's, there's a benefit there. Mm -hmm. So then like, do you think in that context, given the relative low intensity of like a hundred mile or something even longer than that, it, at altitude would that, because, okay, maybe I should just back up a second. The oxygen thing is interesting. I talked about this a bit with Mike, uh, Mike uh, Nelson, sorry, Nelson. Dr. Yep. Mike Nelson, mm-hmm. um, yep. that just like the, the big pushback that I sometimes get, and I think this is a little bit of a straw man is just like, well, we look at a marathon, right. And it's like a very oxygen demand, high action demand event. So mm-hmm. you have a situation where it's like, do you want to be leaning heavily on a fuel source that is more oxygen expensive, like burning fats versus a, a less oxygen expensive, uh, macronutrient with carbohydrate. And it can be easy, I think, to extrapolate that forward and just say, oh yeah, endurance athletes need tons of carbohydrates because they require less oxygen. But when you start pushing that intensity down, uh, you know, much closer to 65, 70% of like your VO2 max, then it's like, do I really need an environment where I have access to the most amount of oxygen? Uh, which I guess then the argument would be, if you go high enough in altitude, you may kind of level off that need because there's just less available. Uh, but if like with your research with, uh, I think it was with divers, right. You were looking at like more of a strict ketogenic diet in order to be able to be more beneficial in an environment like that? Yeah, we, well, we look at something called oxygen toxicity seizures. So maintaining metabolic resilience in the context of hyperoxia induced elevation of reactive oxygen species, uh, which for reasons we don't fully understand creates a metabolic crisis, which then contributes to a seizure. Uh, there's also other factors like an increase in glutamate and, uh, you know, decreasing GABA and things like that. So the ketogenic diet, what it does is it creates metabolic homeostasis and it preserves ATP production in the context of that extreme metabolic and oxidative challenge. 
to maintain, you know, the bioenergetic state of the brain, I guess. Uh, but it also maintains like the neurotransmitter balance because remember the neurotransmitters are for the most part well, the important, uh, the important ones uh, are a function of the Krebs cycle intermediates, right? So the Krebs cycle, uh, oxaloacetate and alpha ketoglutarate uh, will contribute to glutamate and then glutamate via glutamic acid decarboxylase will make GABA. And there's a balance there that's important for uh, essentially making the nervous system fire and it needs to be firing efficiently to activate your muscles and maintain performance. Uh, the being in a state of ketosis works remarkably well uh, for that context. So hypoxia is something we have not, you know, really delved into from a mechanistic perspective uh, because we're mostly interested in divers who are experiencing uh, a high partial pressure of oxygen, also nitrogen and maybe CO2 too, are things that we study. Um, so, so it is, you know, there's a lot of unknowns there in a hypoxic environment and something that needs to be studied. Uh, I know the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, Ken Ford and, and their team uh, are looking at performance right now in hypoxic environments. Uh, uh, sort of navigating some of the COVID restrictions, I think. Uh, and several other labs are, are looking at this. Um, so the data would, I, I think probably getting, probably Mike Nelson, I haven't listened to your interview with him, but I interviewed with, with Mike too. And we are both of the opinion that it's, it's important to uh, promote metabolic flexibility. And an optimal metabolic flexibility would be achieved not by following a ketogenic diet all the time or a high carb diet all the time, but to, uh, to be uh, metabolically resilient if you are fed you know, a high fat, fat, high fat diet or a high carbohydrate diet that you would adapt and use those fuel sources uh, efficiently. Uh, one test I think for metabolic flexibility is fasting right? Some individuals, they completely bonk if they, if they fast, they just, you know, neurologically performance wise, when you do low carb, it makes you more, uh, resilient to fasting. If you fast, uh, the more you fast, the easier it gets, the more benefits you derive from it over time. And I, I believe that there's a metabolic memory, like when we work out or you train up to a certain level, you take time off, you know, you're, you're back down to a certain level, but you achieve that high state of performance, uh, very quickly, you know, from an endurance perspective, the same occurs if you're lifting weights in the gym, you work up to a 400 pound bench press, you could take a year off and maybe down to 300 in a month or two, you could be back down, back up to 400 pounds. So the same thing happens with metabolism. You're training your metabolism, for maximal fat oxidation and ketone production and ketone utilization. And you have trained it over the course of a decade or more, right? So you could take time off and maybe just eat a high carbohydrate diet. But if you were to switch back to a low carb diet, your adaptation, readaptation to that diet would, would be very quickly, it would happen very quickly. So I think there are uh, epigenetic effects there are processes that happen, upregulation of fatty acid oxidation enzymes, uh, ketolytic enzymes, ketone transporters, the liver becomes more efficient at making ketones at transporting them over time. And I think, uh, if, and if you follow certain diets for periods of time, 
and optimize yourself to a range of different diets, I believe you're promoting metabolic flexibility. I guess that's where I want to go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that, uh, that people have the opportunity because metabolism is your meta most people's metabolisms are incredibly adaptable to do. That's why humans survived, right? That's why they're omnivores that they can, you know, it, it seems counterintuitive to conventional nutrition, but you could eat pure, almost 100% fat uh, or fast, like a case report for a year and survive, right? <laughs> Off mm -hmm. basically eating your body fat. Uh, the, humans are incredibly metabolically flexible. Uh, and I think they can work uh, to achieve greater metabolic flexibility. And then that metabolic flexibility will, will serve them well uh, under the training in different contexts, right? That we can utilize fuel sources more efficiently. Um, but when it comes to, you know, a keto adapted athlete being able to sprint, you know, and some people say, well, that's not possible. Uh, I believe it is possible. They just need to do it. It's like, you know, you need to put your body under those extreme demands and then titrate in the carbohydrates to the point where your performance increases. And then, you know, you find that threshold. And I think that people really need to systematically do that. And I think, you know, technologies like continuous glucose monitoring, uh, software algorithms that look at complexity analysis of the CGM trace and, and factor in uh, a dozen or more different metrics in addition, to, in addition to the complexity analysis of the CGM trace in response to meals and exercise. All that can be used to optimize an individual's performance uh, and metabolic flexibility. Mm -hmm. So I really think that's the future, but I think people need to sort of do the work and really uh, expose themselves to different diets to promote uh, metabolic flexibility and not be completely adapted to one form or another. And then, I mean, you have learned over time that adding carbohydrates in intra-workout, but staying low carb in the off season and promoting that optimal fat oxidation is kind of a way to go to sort of prime your body and mm -hmm. adapt it for yeah, it, I think it's it's really interesting to me that like because the way I look at it is like these are all tools, right? And you have to almost yep. get to a point where you're deciding. I mean, same thing. If I were building my house and I had all the tools required, so I'm going to need to pick the right ones for the right situation. So with the race, since I've done mostly single day racing and and a lot of like you know half day type stuff as well, uh, to date I haven't seen a reason to completely pull that carbohydrate tool out of the toolbox. It's still a valuable tool at this point where I think it gets really interesting though. And this is maybe something we can talk about a little bit. Cause I have some context that I may need to look into this more for down the road is when you start getting into these like multi-day type situations, especially the ones where like you're required to self-support or self-carry anything. Cause now you're looking at the logistics of essentially hauling all your fuel with you um, or finding air. So you're going to be running a bigger calorie deficit uh, so then I think like, maybe that opens the door for more of a strict or even zero carbohydrate type approach leading in. Um, my specific context is next year around this time, I'm planning a project to run from San Francisco to New York. And the big difference between that from just what I've done historically is historically, I can kind of go into a race knowing I can trash my body and, uh, you know, 
do some things that are maybe not going to put me in a position to be able to perform at all the next day, but are going to be perfectly fine on the day of. Whereas my target for that run from San Fran to New York is going to be in the neighborhood of 70 to 80 miles per day. So I need to be able to do that and then be able to get up and do it again and again and again for about six weeks. So for that framework, I think it's just going to be, I think there's a few things I'll have a crew. So I'll have access to unlimited calorie, but I also have to deal with being able to, you know, probably take in 10,000 plus calories a day on a regular basis. And also um, the relative intensity of that is going to be, you know, even lower than 24 hours. So for that context, I feel like there's maybe some application to even going or maybe not staying metabolically flexible is the way to look at it. But I, I also can see the value of maybe the, having some carbohydrate, maybe near the end of the day as just a way to really kind of fire up my central nervous system, perhaps a little bit when it's like, you know, 10 hours in and I'm just looking to kind of get a little bit of an extra nudge versus what I am doing. Um, but I'd be mm -hmm. curious as what your thoughts are that in terms of like, at what, actually I have two kind of questions. At what point do you think there's maybe a reason to, forfeit the carbohydrate tool. And then if you have decided that carbohydrate tool is something you want available, what's the lowest you think would be achievable from a, like a gram per day standpoint to still be able to kind of keep that fuel substrate open and available from our exogenous carbohydrate use? Yeah. Um, well, first question I want to ask is, <laughs> When are you doing this crazy feat and are other people doing it? Or is this like a complete kind of solo thing? Is it like an organized sanctioned race? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's going to be around mid September next year. Uh, there's kind of uh -huh. two good windows. Cause you obviously want to avoid winter over the Sierras and you want to yeah. summer <laughs> over in the Midwest and all that stuff. So September kind of opens up a good window to kind of do all those things. Um, it's not an organized event where there'll be multiple people doing it um, unless people decide to jump in and see if they can beat me, but <laughs> so you're, um, it's a solo event that you're mm -hmm. doing. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, was going to say, because like, what kind of people do this? I know. <laughs> like, it's I crazy. can't imagine anybody besides you doing it. <laughs> it's, uh, you'd I, I be surprised. There's actually uh, like it, the trend, they call it the transcon and it actually dates back mm -hmm. to the 1800s. There's a story of, a, I think it's, if I'm, I might butcher this, but there's a story, I believe, of a mother and her daughter who did it as a bet. I think it was something to do with, like, if they could complete it, they they didn't have to pay the rest of their mortgage payment or something like that. It's something weird I gotta where, where, yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. wild. And so there's press, there's, there's a route that is typically used for the record. There's a guy named Pete Koselnik, and he's got the record right now. He averaged, I think it was 72 and a half miles per day. Uh, mm -hmm. and what he did is he just had like a full size RV kind of follow him along and he had like crew there that would get him what he needed and, you know, they would stop where they needed to, whenever he kind of maxed out for the day, took care of him, got him ready for the next day and kind of rinse and repeat for, for about a month and a half. Uh, but yeah, so it's not necessarily, they call it an ultra marathon kind of fastest known times where it's a, it's a popular route. And then people can do it whenever they want to and just kind of test what other people have done historically. Like the Mount Everest ascent type stuff is kind of a similar thing to that, where you'll, you'll never see a race up Mount Everest, but you'll see people trying to yeah. do speed attempts at it and things yeah, like yeah. that. Yep. Uh, wow. Okay. So, uh, so carbohydrates, so fueling, um, you know, you don't with going very low carb is going to put big demands on gluconeogenesis uh, on, you know, your body's capacity to make glucose is, is 
an essential fuel. Like you don't, you know, you, you go low carb, you, you fast, your glucose, there's very powerful homeostatic mechanisms that maintain your blood glucose. And you want to reduce the, uh, you know, you've already stressed the system. So your body's quite adept at making and preserving, you know, your glucose levels. This is where the CGM is going to be very interesting to, to look at that. Uh, but I think especially at nighttime, where your brain, you have neurotransmitters that will depend on glucose production. And part of the, you know, function of sleep is to replenish neurotransmitters and also to replenish glycogen levels in the brain, the glia are store, you know, uh, glucose and glycogen. So I, I think getting in some low glycemic carbs at nighttime will help with recovery and uh, restoring your physiology to make you you know, prime for the next day. Um, but you probably want to, you know, that I sleep is just basically your body shuts down. And it's all about regeneration and recovery, right? So I've always been in favor of the idea of getting carbohydrates in at night, a slow burning or slow digesting carbs at night to keep your glucose levels uh, moderately elevated and to keep that fuel, you know, available for glycogen replenishment, uh, and neurotransmitter replenishment. Uh, but again, I mean, you know, this more than I do, of course, but, uh, but it, it, trying to fuel up on glucose, but I just think very small amounts mm -hmm. glucose would probably be all that's needed. Uh, and, and it deliver and maybe to deliver that even with some amino acids and maybe even like things like medium chain triglycerides, if you can tolerate them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think like I was, uh, speaking with a dietitian friend of mine who, uh, was saying like, she thought that a strategy that would be interesting to look into would be to be stay really low carb during like the morning hours and even early afternoon, and then start kind of slowly introducing more carbohydrate during like the, the last part of the running day and then in dinner that night. And she seemed to think like that would maybe help with potential like swelling and things. Um, it would, so like the big thing that could derail, obviously like this is like an exercise of just making sure I don't destroy myself at any one given time so that I'm able to get back out the next day. And like, like there's going to be like, like if I wake up in the morning and my legs are like super swollen, that's going to be very difficult to kind of sustain that for a long periods of time. I'll probably end up getting an injury before I'd make it to the East coast. If I'm waking up with a lot of swelling in my legs uh, and, and she, I, I believe I'd have to follow up uh, with her to see exactly what she meant by that. But, uh, I, I think like there would maybe be, a, a it might be a better way to kind of avoid that by staying lower in the carbohydrates rather, rather than going on the extreme, which I wouldn't do anyway. I'd be following some form of a low carbohydrate diet, regardless. I'm kind of deciding at how low I want to go. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. As to like, if I just woke up in the morning, where I was just eating like a bunch of refined carbohydrates and like pancakes and what you would expect, maybe like a, a moderate to high carbohydrate athlete to do for a project like this. Yeah. I mean, there's really no way to uh, experiment, right? Because it's yeah. not like something you, it's like you kind of, you're, you're in it. Uh, it's not like you run a, a couple training runs for this. Um but I, I think you could probably, the idea is to, you're already adapted. So start low and then titrate things in as you feel it's needed. And I think um, 
a lot of biofeedback and or uh, you know CGM feedback may be important too uh, to stay and, and take note of that and maybe look at your training now to to realize where your where that target range is where you feel optimal uh, where that target range is when you're overtrained. Uh, the target ranges uh, or out of target range would be if you've overfed on carbohydrates, but uh, probably not a good idea to have like real high postprandial excursions in, in, in your glucose levels, because that could do more harm than good, especially in this very uh, <laughs> precarious, I, I, maybe that's not the right word, situation you're putting your body into. So there's like really high metabolic stress and oxidative stress. So you don't want to spike your glucose levels into ranges where you could be kicking on processes that could, you know, exacerbate inflammation or oxidative stress. So I think maintaining glycemic homeostasis will be an important thing and not to go too low or too high, right. Mm -hmm. would be a very important thing. And I think that feedback, a CGM feedback could be really important in that context and probably be a, a you'll probably have a, I would think a, a significant advantage, not that you're competing against other people. Uh, but if you, so if you were competing against other people and you were wearing a CGM, I think that would be, uh, a, a significant advantage The CGM and the software that's analyzing that data, I think could provide uh, a remarkable advantage to, to someone competing in such an event. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I probably will wear one. Um, I think, well, I'll, at the very least, what I'll do is, wear one in some of these, I'm going to do some simulations before, whether I do it in an event or not is the only question. So what I'll probably do is I'll do at least three and maybe up to six days where I try to target kind of the mileage range um, just to kind of get a good look at like how many calories will I in individually burn at that kind of uh, into, or that exercise volume. Because the way I'm looking at this is like, let's say, I find out that I'm burning 11,000 calories a day or something like that during this effort. And I'm eating 10,000 calories a day. I'm not going to notice that I'm missing that thousand calories the way I would, if I were sedentary and eating 2000 calories a day, and then went down to 1000, uh, just because the volume of food is going to be so much more than what I would normally do anyway, that I have to be pretty, or at least close enough that I'm not, you know, losing a pound or two a week, because then I won't make it to the East Coast either. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think so I think like, uh, I'm going to do some of those trials where I get I start to iron some of that stuff out. And I think, like wearing that the CGM for that will maybe give me a little bit of a roadmap of what I can expect to be the case. And then with that information, uh, have a little bit of a scaffolding to build off of, but also be mindful that, you know, week five might be different than day three of the, of a, of a little simulation and uh, it still respond to the, the CGM during the event or during the, the attempt itself, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Or, you know, maybe if you have a team and that data becomes available in real time that they can look at that and they would know, you know, I envision a scenario and I, I frequently talk about this. Well, for the last 10 years, a scenario where, you know, we have real-time measurement of glucose, ketones, and lactate, and then that goes on to, uh, into a software where people can view that and basically start engineering the nutrition that you need. 
And um, I mean, this is sort of like, you know, optimal for the warfighter or for the astronaut. So we, so we can fully optimize their metabolism for specific things. If they're going to go into a mission an underwater mission or an astronaut doing an extra vehicular activity, what we call an EVA, uh, you want to have their physiology, their, their neurochemistry, neuroscience, you know, that you want them to be optimized. And I think if that data is collected and available to a crew that could be assisting you, wow, that could, that could, that would be a game changer. I really think um, that you would have to understand how those parameters would be optimized. So you'd have to train and only through training and collecting data over time, could you understand where your performance is optimized and what those parameters should be and what the ideal ranges should be. And if they start to fall out of range or go above range, then you can make adjustments to your nutrition or supplementation to put them back into the optimal range. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I think really that that's kind of like the future and maybe you could be taking the first step <laughs> towards uh, sort of using it in that, in that context, in that regard. Yeah, I think it'd be it'd be very interesting because I think like with with levels too, like you can set that up where the data spits out off site. I think too, right? So like someone would just need to have access to my profile, and then they could you could we could have someone sitting, you know, stationary somewhere off course, looking at that from time to time and seeing like what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm understanding, I'm still pretty new with the software on that as well, but I think that that is one of the the features of of their program, but. Uh, but like you said, yeah, hopefully I can produce some good data. I'm going to try to study as much stuff as possible or measure as much stuff as possible for this too. Cause mm-hmm. there's essentially an endless number of things. Like, I mean, like any research project, right. You can, there's an endless number of questions you can ask and eventually you have to narrow it down to a few and decide which ones are most important for you to mm-hmm. study. And, um, but you know, there'll, there'll be other folks available to help with that too. So that'll be kind of, kind of a fun, fun thing to maybe, maybe a fun thing to add to the list of stuff to, to peek mm-hmm. into along the way. <laughs> yeah. If you can imagine like a multi-array sensor and we know that you're optimized at like 1.2 millimolar of lactate, two millimolar ketones and like 3.5 millimolar glucose or something like that. And to maintain those levels plus or minus, you know, 10 or 20%, but also to have things, you know, sensors that measure your electrolytes your potassium, magnesium, sodium, these things, um, and, and other, other parameters, you know, in the blood that, that are, are important, your hydration status. Uh, yeah. And be able to have real time closed loop, uh, feedback on that and to be able to make, uh, adjustments and maybe even like your, your blood caffeine level. So we know that certain, certain ergogenic aids are, uh, legal, and if they're illegal and they have been documented to provide, you know, enhanced athletic performance, then, you know, technologies that can monitor them in the blood. And, and maybe one could say that ketones are a potential ergogenic aid. And we just happen to have commercially available technology, uh, unlike, you know, caffeines or hormones or, or, or hormones, I guess you can could, but uh, they're more like training aids, but we have a real time you know, metabolite in our blood and we have commercially available technologies where we can measure the level of that. And then we have technologies like exogenous ketones where we can adjust the, that metabolite level to achieve uh, an optimal 
threshold or an optimal range. Uh, and I really think that, I mean, you take people who are already at the top of their game like you, and then you add these technologies, these wearables, and then the real technology will be in the software, I think, to, to analyze those metabolites. And then technologies that would allow us to deliver those metabolites in graded amounts and in, in predetermined measure amounts, measured amounts to optimize your performance. So I think that's really, I think that'll take you to the next level, you know, but you're not, you're like competing against yourself because no one's at your level. So <laughs> you'll, have to, you'll have to like break new ground. Right. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting. Cause I know, I mean, the guy whose record I'm going to go after Pete, he's, he's the man at these long stage things. He did another one where he ran from Alaska down to the Florida keys, just pushing a stroller. It was self-supported pushed a stroller and averaged like 50 some miles a day or something like that. So like, I will definitely have to like give it my best to try to maintain what he was being, what he was trying to do there. But uh, um, it'll be regardless of whether I get the record or not. I think there's just a lot of opportunity because one thing Pete, Pete was a little, maybe a little more low key with his attempt. Like he definitely was documenting it and stuff, but uh, he wasn't like uh, collecting much more data other than his route and his pacing and that sort of stuff. And I I think maybe heart rate, but yeah, I want to weave in a lot of that stuff. So I think it'd be so cool to see, and yeah, maybe, maybe develop a template for other folks to kind of use with, uh, with bringing in some of this wearable tech into like performance or like day of performance versus even, even looking at it post post event and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, with the levels program, other technologies, other wearables will integrate into it. So you can look at your heart rate variability and your recovery at night, I think sleep is going to be really critical for this uh, crazy thing you're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you'll want to make sure that your your sleep is optimal and you want to probably uh, optimize your nutrition to optimize your sleep. And uh, yeah, I think I think I think really that's that's going to be the future, being able to break new ground in different areas. Uh, you know, I think it's in, important to understand as many variables as possible to really understand how your body is adapting to this new stress. And I guess you've never really done anything quite like this, right? So you'll be pushing your body into new, new ranges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that actually brings up a, another topic that we kind of talked about one end of the spectrum with the low blood sugar, like the below 50 and I forgot to ask about the high end too. And we, ch- we chatted a bit about it before I hit record. But one thing I've noticed in the short time I've worn the CGM now is the impact sleep has. And I'm a very good sleeper. I, it's been a kind of a weird sleep's been of an interesting kind of component for me personally, because I was a really good sleeper my entire life up until I started doing ultra marathons, uh, kind of more like directly training for ultra marathons in 2011, where I noticed my sleep quality was starting to really, really nosedive. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why I latched to low carb, uh, right away and didn't necessarily bail out on it was cause that's the first thing I noticed. I noticed that for me personally was that sleep, my sleep really improved when I was down, uh, you know, closer to ketogenic levels in nutrition than high carbohydrate. Uh, so like for me, it was like, well, that's a big flag to, to note that, you know, that scene for whatever reason, because I've talked to people who've had the exact opposite experience where they're like, Oh yeah, I had to solve sleep in order to stay with a high fat approach or a low carb approach. So I don't know um, 
if you see trends within that or not. But uh, in general, the sleep thing has been the most interesting thing I think so far, because I had one day where I didn't buy intention, but I slept like very few hours. It was like pretty about half of what I normally would. And that next day, all my readings on the CGM were off from what that would normally do or that would normally have. Uh, and mm-hmm. I even had, a, I had a, a meal where I introduced a little bit of carbohydrate, some simple carbohydrate that spiked it up to 192, which is the highest reading I've ever seen on my, on that thing for me. I think my highest yeah. peak, I mean, I, it, well, I'll let you answer this question. Then I'll introduce the next one. So I don't get too many, uh, too many layered in here, but is that like, what have you seen with like kind of the sleep quality, uh, within a ketogenic diet? I'm going to measure mine now. Yeah. Yeah. Check it. <laughs> Just, uh, uh, I'm at 85, 85. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I had a bar, a perfect keto, uh, nutrition bar before that. And it's just like completely flat. It didn't look like I ate anything. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, I do see, you know, what, I, what I would say that anytime you deviate from what's normal for you, uh, you're probably going to see it on your CGM, mm-hmm. right? So if someone's high carb, then goes to ketogenic diet and they, they can't sleep. That wouldn't surprise me. Uh, but I think if they adapt over time, you know, that'll help, especially if they're late night eaters and they, they, uh, get their calories in earlier in the day and don't eat too much at night. I notice for me, I tend to, if, if I have one really bad habit, I need to break is just, I just get too much calories later in the day. So, because, you know, I get fired up with work and I just like forget to eat. And if you're on a ketogenic, you tend to not be hungry. So mm-hmm. it's actually pretty easy to create a calorie deficit. So I lose weight really quick. If I don't start eating at night and like a big bowl of sour cream, I'm eating with like, you know, cinnamon and cocoa powder just to get my calories in. Uh, but I, I, I do think it, it is remarkable the observation you made and an important observation that sleep can affect our uh, CGM trace and by definition our metabolic health. And I think that that's a really important observation. People need to look at that and analyze that. And I think maybe, um, our metabolic score, our metabolic health may be a good indication of how much, how much sleep we're getting and how much we need. Like if you consistently, need seven or eight, but do a whole week where you're not necessarily sleeping three hours, but you do six hours and you do that over consecutive nights and you see progressively poor metabolic scores, that's, that's, that's really good feedback that you need to, you know, that it's impacting you from a metabolic health perspective. It needs to be corrected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it really is interesting. I was surprised to see it, but I guess I probably, I, I knew sleep was a, was a, you know, a, a trigger for some of that stuff. So I, I, I thought it would maybe be um, different, but when I saw 192 show up, I was like, Oh man, that's a, <laughs> that's really out there. It's yeah. a really a big flag. I think the other thing I noticed I wanted to ask you about too, was just meal size, because I do get a, mm-hmm. I do get a spike after I have a meal. Um, if there's any carbohydrate in it. Uh, but my meals are r- really big because I'm typically mm-hmm. eating like I typically have two main meals a day. And then depending on my activity level, I'll weave in some snacks there as I need to, to maintain weight and things like that. Um, but really there's two main ones. And, you know, when you, if you just do the, the math, you know, if I'm running hundred to, I guess right now I ran 172 miles last week, which is really high for me relative, but 
uh, it's what I have, uh, for the, for the training program at the moment. So, uh, I'll see a big spike, uh, if I have any carbohydrate in the meal. So I was curious, like what, cause I mean, these meals are sometimes 2000 calories easy. Is there something that's going to spike it more just by the size of the meal versus even the macronutrient profile? Yeah. Carbs. If you eat carbs by itself, like I ate oatmeal by itself and it shot me up like almost to 190. I, I think like it was almost as much as a Coke or like a pop tart. Uh, uh, but when I combined fat and protein with the same amount of oatmeal, like it was almost a flat line, mm. you know? So, uh, the, the sequence of the food that you eat, if you eat salad and vegetables and essentially fiber before eating, uh, a starch or even sugar, it's going to attenuate the rise in glycemic response. And I think if you can attenuate that rise, you're better able to transport the glucose to where it needs to be to replenish glycogen stores. And if you consume, you know, a bolus of sugar, right. And get like a postprandial rise that dumps insulin and, uh, I don't know, creates some metabolic havoc. <laughs> I think you're, you're much better to get metered amounts of carbohydrates in with fat and fiber and protein. Uh, so I think a mixed meal in, instead of, uh, which a lot of athletes do contrary to what I'm saying. Uh, and it's of course my theory, but, uh, but, uh, probably I'm, I'm sure there must be some data on this, but to deliver carbohydrates, especially if you're a low carb athlete to deliver it in a way that creates a minimal, postprandial excursion, but they're being stored efficiently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, the one thing I was going to follow up with that on is like, cause I was told early on my kind of low carb journey was that when I do reintroduce carbohydrates to it's kind of best to treat them kind of like as a dessert where you eat the fat, the protein and the fiber, the non-starchy fiber vegetables and then, you know, if you're going to have like berries and cream or something like that, or add in that carbohydrate source, do it kind of treat it as like that final piece to the meal. And that would be a better way to go about it. Is that kind of the same idea that you're, you're getting to with that? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I've always thought that way too, but it wasn't very apparent and I didn't have, I couldn't prove it, uh, you know, unambiguously without looking at my CGM response uh, to those meals. Yeah. And if I have any amount of if, if carbohydrates in isolation, even if it's something like oatmeal or something with, with, uh, a clean carb, like a, a sweet potato or something like that, or brown rice gives me a pretty huge spike. If I eat that in isolation, whereas if I have protein and fiber and fat, and then eat the, the starch or the carbohydrate source after it's almost like, I don't even see it on my CGM. It's amazing. So that means I just, I handle from a glycemic perspective, I handle that much better. And people may have different glyc, you know, glycemic signature or whatever you want to call it to different foods. And I think you're going to see a range of responses and maybe not everyone's going to, but uh, see that kind of effect, but I almost see no effect of a relatively high amount of carbohydrates. I mean, for me, uh, 30, 40, 50 grams of carbs. If I uh, combine my meals properly. And I think that's one thing that CGM has really shed light on that. Also, if I, um, I, you may be assisting, uh, glucose transport and storage into glycogen. If you go for uh, a moderate or a low intensity walk after, 
So a short walk, 10 minutes, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes, we go walk the dogs after our, uh, actually after breakfast and after dinner. And I think this basically will make my glucose go down even after eating carbohydrates. Um, and it's not, you know, I think it's important maybe not to be too intense after you, you eat a meal. Uh, but I think I have better disposal, much better glucose disposal, uh, of a meal. And I think you have insulin mediated glucose disposal, and then you have non-insulin mediated activity dependent glucose disposal just by virtue of, uh, increasing circulation and increasing, you know, transporter activity of glucose that's independent of insulin. You facilitate that when you go do moderate, you know, easy exercise uh, activity after a meal. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I guess that's uh, a reminder for me when my wife asks at night after dinner, like, you want to take the dogs for a walk? I shouldn't be lazy and say no. <laughs> I know. Go, go, go with her. <laughs> I, I often think of like every possible excuse sometimes. But yeah. I, I think back and never in my existence have I ever regretted doing exercise. You know, I can come up mm -hmm. with every excuse. Oh, it's raining outside. Mm -hmm. We're in Florida. So it's like, you know, 98 and super humid. And I just don't feel, and I got work to do, but I never, ever regretted in my life, you know, doing physical activity exercise. So I could come up with every excuse. So, uh, yeah, I think people would be really doing themselves, um, uh, a good service to their metabolic health. If they simply took a short walk and it's amazing, just 10 minutes, uh, apparently like Stan efforting, who's like a, uh, world-class bodybuilder, power lifter had been advocating this for like 10 years. And I started mm -hmm. posting about it and someone was like, Oh no, Stan efforting. And I look back and it's like, yeah, he's like kind of coined this 10 minute walk after a meal, uh, to like facilitate, to maximize, you know, glycogen replenishment and to, and just for general health. Yeah. The, well, the bodybuilding community, I think has, has always been an interesting one to me, even yeah. though I'm far from a bodybuilder, <laughs> but they seem to kind of be a little more, uh, exploratory with some of that stuff, I think before, certainly before I was. So I yeah. remember back before there was any real precedent, I think with endurance athletes that I saw outside of like Finney and Volick stuff. Um, you know, I looked to that community from time to time just to see like what they were, what they were chatting about with, uh, with that, even when it, you know, obviously our performance like goals are on opposite ends of the spectrum, but there's still things you can glean. Like so, that's a perfect example of something you can glean where it doesn't matter if you're a power lifter or an endurance runner, if, you know, if you can better control your glucose with a 10 minute walk after a meal, then it's probably mm -hmm. something to take note almost, uh, irregardless of what your, your performance goals are. Um, but yeah, yeah the, they're the ultimate biohacker before yeah. the term was even, and they're the epitome of self-experimentation not necessarily always in the most healthy right. way, but they, uh, yeah, I think we have a lot to learn from that com community. And sometimes I'll just pop in the forums and be like, what are these guys doing, you know, to achieve these states? I think, uh, they're always pushing the limits. I mean, I guess you could say that with any extreme athlete, but I think with bodybuilding, you have, there's a lot that we can glean from what they're doing. Right. And actually translatable to disease states. So, uh, yeah. I've, I've acquired a lot of knowledge just, just by watching what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing too, as long as I'll, I'll, this will be my last CGM question, I promise is, uh, uh, what, when the more typical response I get after one of those big meals is I'll get that spike. But what I notice is other than the day where I didn't get a lot of sleep, I notice it comes down so fast. Like it's, yeah. uh, it's almost like a straight line up and down. 
And then Mm -hmm. like within the hour, I'm back down to like, say eight, even with carbohydrates in the, in the meal. Um, Is that something that people should look for, or is it just very unique to the individual? Um, My guess is you don't want to spike and stay up there for my intuition is that you don't want to spike and stay up there for very long, which Mm -hmm. what I saw on the poor sleep day was that spike came and then it came back down, but it came down at a much more gradual slope than what it would have done normally. Yeah, I think that area under the curve is kind of an important thing. And I think that's factored into the levels, metabolic score, as are a number of different variables. But uh, the amplitude or total peak is an important thing. But being that your body had the appropriate response, release the insulin, and the insulin worked, right, and caused facilitated glucose disposal in a very rapid way, that's just uh, a consequence of your great metabolic health. Right. And I think for people who are insulin resistant, uh, what you typically see is, you know, a spike and then a protracted, you know, uh, postprandial excursion that goes on for hours and, and could be, you know, if that's done repeatedly over time, definitely not doing your body any, any good. So, um, so, and, and some may say that, well, when you combine carbohydrates with protein or fat, it just extends that it just shifts it to the right. But I don't really see that I can take a pretty I took, you know, uh, uh, raw oats, and it shot me up. And but it when I combined it with fat and protein, and then ate it. uh, And I didn't even have to go for a walk, I just didn't get any rise at all. So I just got like a better, uh, uh, a more appropriate release of insulin and shuttling of that glucose to where it needs to be, apparently, because I had a really nice glycemic response. And this is just, just in, you know, constructing or engineering your meals and just using that CGM feedback to basically figure out what to do and what not to do. And, to and not even in just engineering the meal, but the, the order in which you eat the foods too. So if I was to eat the carbs in the beginning, then I would definitely probably see it, that spike up. But I just intuitively know to, you know, eat the fiber first, the protein, you know, with the fat and then get the, the carbs in after that. And, um, you know, you feel better too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting stuff. I think um, the, the other question I wanted to kind of tap into you with about uh, it has to do with just uh, uh, saturated fat. And you kind of, you said something that, that uh, tipped me off to it too, when you were talking about the the cream with the cocoa and cinnamon uh, is uh, just the topic of saturated fat, I think is so confusing to people, partly because I think there's, we probably still have enough to learn about it. But then when you get this scenario where saturated fat from different sources can be defined as both uh, an increase in your risk of like a cardiovascular event. And then there's some saturated fats where they're actually like protective um, I think when you get into, was it, is it cocoa powder or cocoa fat is going to be, is one that is like the highest reign, reign of protective, um, mm. alongside maybe was it dairy, dairy, I think is pretty protective too, but then you get like straight animal fats, which are going to, uh, give you like a little bit of a different, uh, like blood cholesterol signature, if I'm understanding that right. Uh, what are your thoughts kind of on that? And do you, do you personally kind of look at that stuff and kind of, uh, build your meals with, uh, with that type of stuff in mind? Well, uh, yeah, this is a topic of debate and contention. And I, I generally don't, uh, 
I'm a little bit indifferent if I see my LDL or uh, LP little a, or, and if I, if I see an atherogenic or what's perceived as an atherogenic profile uh, or biomarker that's out of range, but everything else or the things that I think are most important, uh, hemoglobin A1C, triglycerides, uh, you know, your insulin level, your, uh, if my HSCRP is non-detectable or 0.1 and everything else is, is sort of almost optimized. And I see an elevation of that, you know, uh, LDL or, uh, uh, you know, other, other biomarkers that are perceived as atherogenic. I don't, I'm not very concerned about that. Uh, but if I do see shifts in, um, you know, kind of more global shifts and other biomarkers or trends, then I'll start adjusting some things, which I, I admit that I did in the beginning because I was to get the amount of fat I needed for a ketogenic diet, especially early on, I was getting a lot of dairy fat, like 200 and 200, sometimes 300 grams a day of like dairy fat. Uh, and this was causing some pretty big changes in uh, it, when I got an NMR lipid profile they, and just making some small adjustments uh, or titrating back down less saturated fat and more monounsaturated fats. Uh, and also I switched uh, over a year or two to a, a modified uh, ketogenic diet, which was higher in protein. Uh, I was losing a little bit of strength and, and adding, going to a modified ketogenic diet and, and boosting my protein definitely help restore things. And, uh, but that could have been just part of the adaptation. There's a learning curve, uh, in addition to adapting to the diet over time, there's a learning curve to implementing the diet and adjusting the ratios and the calories. Uh, and I was doing it from a research perspective because I just wanted to understand as much as possible what it was like to follow this diet. Um, uh, but, and then everything normalized, uh, in about a half a year to a year, you know, but I did notice that going, uh, you know, that a, a very high dairy fat content from butter cream. And now I have sour cream every day, maybe even as 50 to hundred grams of fat from sour cream, but my blood work looks really good. I trend a little high on LDL, but triglycerides are, are pretty good. Everything's in normal range now. And it could also be uh, uh, a function of just I eat a pretty much baseline amount of calories and I tend to just go into a deficit a couple times a week and maybe on the weekends, I'm a little bit, um, you know, have a little bit of a surplus amount of calories, but I can tell you that if you're on a ketogenic diet and you're using it to bulk up and you have surplus amount of calories in the form of fat, I think that'll really screw up your, mm -hmm. your lipid profile. Uh, and I think that needs to be acknowledged too. It's, Maybe it'll disrupt it more than eating carbohydrates too, or getting an excess amount of carbohydrates. So I think where the ketogenic diet is, is sort of, sort of shines is, is if you are, if you want to do a calorie deficit and getting your body in a state of ketosis, I think it, it can help one achieve a calorie deficit just by moderating your, uh, your appetite. One could say that with a high protein diet too. Uh, but I, but I just see it as a tool for getting fat adapted, which you have done, but also a tool for weight loss and metabolic health, simply through allowing people to uh, reduce their calorie uh, consumption. Mm -hmm. I know yeah. that's a debate too, you know, yeah, yeah, whether yeah. <laughs> it's all about calories or yeah, it totally is about calories. So, uh, and I think the ketogenic 
diet or intermittent fasting is a, a tool uh, for, I know that recent study by Ethan Weiss came out showing that uh, I think there was some lean body mass loss, but we're, we're writing a review on that and actually we'll be publishing a, a blog to discuss that a little bit more, uh, the effects of intermittent fasting. But I view intermittent fasting and low carb diets, ketogenic diets as an extremely valuable tool to help people achieve a caloric deficit to optimize their metabolic health. And then I know experimentally, you know, from the lab, there are major benefits to having ketones elevated in your blood. They're not only an energetic fuel, they are a signaling molecule with a wide range of effects on the body, even epigenetic effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's always interesting. I think with, especially with the, the calorie stuff, because it's just, there's so much like head banging against the wall from, from all sides when it comes to that. But I, I always laugh about it a little bit because, um, you know, I'm on kind of on the other side of the spectrum where if I, 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 and there's, there's times during the year where I wish I could find a diet that made me less calorie dependent because I'm not trying to force feed myself as often then. But, um, yeah, I, I never really had a huge record, like not, not when I actually tracked anything where I noticed like, Oh, I have to eat, you know, say 500 calories a day more when I'm doing like a higher fat versus a higher carb. It, I think it seems to me that it's more of a, like an individual satiation thing, uh, mm-hmm. where like, there's just a lot of people who can control intuitively how much food they're eating when they're on a ketogenic diet versus what they were able to do on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. Um, and then there's probably people on the other end of the spectrum too, where, uh, for whatever reason they get, they're eating carbohydrates that tend to be more satiating, or at least they are for them. And then they, they have an easier time staying in range with that. But, um, yeah, it's yeah. a, it's an interesting one. <laughs> it's easy to over, it's easy to get surplus amount of calories on a keto. You could do some damage just sitting down and eating a bag of cashews or, or nut butter or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think most people inadvertently will reduce their calories over time, you know, with a ketogenic diet. And one could argue it's because it's a restrictive diet and it's less palatable foods, right? Whereas uh, processed carbohydrates are, especially with fat, processed carbs are generally hyper palatable. So it's not surprising that we have an obesity problem due to the accessibility and promotion of foods that are, you know, processed carbohydrates that are hyper palatable. Uh, but that's a whole nother sort of avenue, usually a, a topic that I stay away from. Yeah. Yeah. Only gets you in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, <laughs> I, I, uh, but I mean, it's so obvious, I mean, to see that, but I just kind of stay out of the arguments that are just polarized. Mm-hmm. I'm always somewhere in the middle when it comes to that. Yeah. It's just a funny side story with that too, is, uh, if you, if people want to know, like, can you, can you easily gain weight with, with fats and proteins was I had a, I had a, a friend and coaching client back when I lived in Wisconsin who was doing, uh, he was pretty close to strict ketogenic. Um, he'd get up to maybe a hundred grams, 80 to hundred every once in a while on big training days, but he did a hundred K race one day. And, after he finished, he drank 3000 calories of heavy whipping cream right afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I couldn't even believe he was able to keep that down. But, uh, wow. you know, it's like he actually, well, he ran a hundred kilometers first, so he's probably not going to gain any weight from that. But, um, yeah. if you don't run a hundred kilometers and drink 3000 calories of cream, you'll probably be hungry at some point during the day and then want to yeah. end up overeating if you didn't already with just the 3000. So, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Fat is very calorically dense. If you're doing intermittent fasting and throwing a, a stick of butter in your coffee in the morning and drinking that you're not intermittent fasting. No, <laughs> there yet. So it's <laughs> important to acknowledge that. Cool. Well, Dom, I don't want to take up too much of your time. You've already been very generous and uh, you know, I've been just super excited to be able to sit down and talk with you here today. Um, I do want to give you a chance to share with our listeners where they can find you on, uh, on the internet or social media. And if there's anything fun and interesting, you want to let them, let them know about that's coming up for you. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate being on and, uh, that people can find out more about what I do on keto nutrition.org. And, uh, and then, you know, I will share this podcast on my social platforms. So, uh, so they can find me there too. just, uh, on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, but keto nutrition.org is kind of like my informational website that people can go to. Awesome. They will link all of that stuff to the show notes folks. So if you're interested in quick clicking over, that'll be down there. Uh, but otherwise, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Zach. I appreciate it. I've partnered with one of my sponsors, S Fuels, to create a online virtual training stadium that we're calling Sweatfest. So Sweatfest includes all sorts of different running and biking type workouts. I know some of you are probably thinking, I like fast, I like intensity, I like speed sessions. Why would I want to go join Zach for one of his 100-mile race training sessions that are just long, slow, and boring? Well, we got stuff for everyone. So even you speedsters out there, we've got an offering that is basically 30 seconds of all out running followed by only 30 seconds of recovery. So we've got all those bases covered. They're all free. So head over to sfuelsgolonger.com forward slash stadium and check out our offerings and let me know what you think. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at ZachBitter.com or my social media channels at ZachBitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.